Well, Happy New Year, everybody. If you're new here at Evergreen, I'd like to welcome you. I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. And again, as I usually say, it's my privilege to be able to share uh, scripture with you. And I really do mean that. It really truly is a privilege to be able to uh, preach God's word, to share God's story with you. And we're going to uh, lately, over the past while, we've been uh, dealing with different subjects, different themes throughout Scripture. But today, in the new year, I want to get back to our roots. And as a church, the way that I tend to teach is actually through books of the Bible. And so we're actually going to return back to teaching through a book of the Bible. And I've chosen specifically the teachings of Peter, the Apostle Peter. And so if you'll open your Bibles to 1 Peter, we are going to fire into a whopping two chapters this morning. So we're going to be a while uh, in 1 Peter. Now, just as you're doing that, I've always been super fond of Peter. I, I really have. I find him to be uh, the most interesting apostle. A lot of people really resonate with Paul and they really spend a lot of time with Paul because he wrote so much of the New Testament. But I really find Peter interesting and I resonate with him in many ways. It could be because I think we hold some similar personality traits. But I, Peter is a really super important figure in the New Testament. And, and he's going to point to in this passage uh, in the opening, that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, folks, I want you to understand that when we read biblical language like that, and we see, you know, Peter as an apostle, we tend to, like, make him glow and, and pretend like he's this, like, holy person that's above everybody else. So I want to spend a little bit of time actually introducing you to Peter before we get into the text. Did you know that Peter, and a lot of you probably know this, but Peter was once a fisherman. That's what he did. That's what the family business was. He was a fisherman. And if you know anything about Jewish history, that means he wasn't the best of the best. It means he didn't have a ton of schooling under his belt. He, he wasn't a scribe. He wasn't somebody that was, uh, was taught uh, the scriptures. They all were taught the scriptures, but he didn't excel at it. He's a fisherman. A regular working guy that's working in the family business. You need to understand there's nothing special about Peter. Now, I know in our culture, there's something special about each one of us. <laughs> but there's really nothing special about Peter. He wasn't a Jewish scholar. He wasn't a scribe. He's just a regular Jewish kid. He's actually a teenager. Now, his original name actually isn't Peter. It's Simon. And his brother Andrew is actually the one who brought him to meet Jesus. And very quickly, Simon became one of Jesus's disciples. He's probably the most vocal disciple. He's one of the ones that we hear from and about the most. And he's the one that Jesus actually gave a new name. Now, this is really important because when someone is given a new name in the Jewish culture, it was a sign that they were being called to something important. And God would do this throughout the Hebrew scriptures. It's actually super normal. He would rename people and give them a specific call or a specific promise. 
Like, for instance, Abram became Abraham. Some of you may have heard of him. His original name is Abram. It isn't Abraham. God changed it to Abraham. And a guy named Jacob. Jacob became Israel. So his original name was Jacob, but God changed it to Israel. You may have heard of that name. Jesus renamed Simon the moment that he meets him in John's gospel. So John records this in the first chapter of John's gospel in verse 42. It says, then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Andrew's Peter's brother or Simon's brother. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. Kind of a weird meeting, right? Like, you, hi, I'm Jesus. I'm, I'm Peter. I'm not Peter. I'm Simon. Sorry. Nice to meet you, Jesus. Nice to meet you too. I know lots about you. Your name is now this. Kind of strange. But to Peter, it wouldn't have actually been. So you have to understand that. We have to move ourselves into their culture. To Peter, this would have actually meant something, that his name was being changed. Now, the, the name Peter also means rock. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. It says, now I say to you, I say that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now, before we get into that, I love that passage. Not because Peter means rock, which in itself is pretty darn cool. But the fact that it says, I'll build my church. So Peter's going to play an important role in the building of the church and that all the powers of hell will not conquer this church. That's incredibly encouraging to me because today the church seems so lost and so engulfed in sin. And the fact that scripture promises us that no power of hell will ever conquer it, it means no matter how bad churches may be doing in our Western culture, it will always prevail. And that's encouraging because it will prevail in spite of us. I love it. Now, the disciple that's named by Jesus, Peter, he's called specifically to play a really important role in the establishment of his church. Now, I'm pretty convinced that Peter actually had no idea what Jesus meant by this statement. I don't think that Peter was like in that moment going, yes, I'm the rock of the church. You're going to build the church. I think Peter was like, what's a church? What on earth is he talking about? Like, I have no idea what Jesus is even saying. And I say this because I, I need to give you this picture of Peter being a normal teenage kid that doesn't fully grasp what Jesus is often saying to him. I don't think he had any idea what Jesus meant by this statement. And I don't think he fully understood what Jesus even came to do. The Jews had many speculations about what they thought that was, but just like Christians, they fought about what that would look like. Peter is a work in progress. I want you to hear that. Peter, this teenage kid, is a work in progress. He's, a, he's the disciple that was the most vocal. 
He even actually tried to walk on water. Has, has anybody ever? I'll admit. I'll admit I've tried. Right? I, I, and it actually wasn't that long ago. Like, I wasn't a kid or anything. And I tried to, like, I'll, I'll pray enough. I, this would be so cool if the Spirit would empower me to just for, like, 10 seconds walk on water. Maybe my son will see it happen. I'll be the coolest dad ever. And I sank right to the bottom. Uh, and I don't like water, so it was not a good moment. Peter tried to walk on water. He vowed to Jesus that he would never, ever betray him or deny him. That's what I love about Peter. You see, he promises things and then fails at them miserably. I can identify with that. I remember when I was a goaltender. Now, I wasn't a Christian at this point, so don't correct my theology you know, or anything like that. But I remember as a goalie playing hockey, and I remember praying to God to say, Lord, help me to stop every puck today so that I could look awesome to the girl in the stands that's come to watch. <laughs> and if, and if, if you do that for me, then I will do anything you want me to do. You ever made that kind of promise to God where you're like, ah, just if this could happen, then God, I'll just, I'll submit my whole self to you. I'll do everything. And then like three seconds later, you're doing the opposite. This is what I love about Peter. He promises things and then fails at them miserably. He's confident in his faith in Jesus, yet he doesn't fully grasp just how big of a deal this Jewish rabbi truly is. And folks, I actually think the church today, especially the Western church, us sitting here right now, me included, don't fully grasp just how big of a deal this Jewish rabbi really is. And you know how I know that? Just watch. Because if we really truly understood that this Jewish rabbi who gave his life for us absolutely transformed the trajectory of the world, we might respond with some joy. So I'm just not fully convinced. I think we kind of know who he is, but I don't know that we really truly know how big of a deal this Jewish rabbi really is even today. Peter didn't either. I don't think he fully grasped it. And after Jesus is arrested, Peter, in order to save his own life, denies Jesus three distinct times. So the Bible actually weaves us through the iniquities of Peter. I promise this, I'll never leave you. I'll never, oh, wait a minute. I don't know who this guy is. You see, when life's on the line, we tend to make different decisions. We tend to go back on things that we say. I love it. I absolutely love this about Jesus. This is the guy that Jesus, or about Peter, sorry. This is the guy that Jesus said was going to play an important role in establishing the church. And he's just a normal dude like you and I. Messy, not perfect, doesn't always get it, makes promises to God that he can't even keep. And this is the rock. Now that phrase, the rock, I'm not going to get into this today, but the Catholic Church has uh, tried to line up uh, the papacy, the Pope, with the line of Peter. Uh, I'll just simply tell you that's like impossible. 
I, I'll, another time I can cut some holes in that for you, but I won't waste a lot of time on that today. It's just uh, historically actually impossible that that's true. Uh, and I believe that what Jesus is actually saying is that Peter will play a key role, specifically in the early church, the book of Acts, chapter 2. Uh, and then we see other people playing key roles in the life of the church. So now that we've gotten that junk out of the way, uh, let's get into this. Now, I need to introduce you to the new Peter. So I just introduced you to the Peter that we get early on in scripture, in the gospel message. But in Acts chapter two, we get a different Peter. Later in the story, after Jesus dies, so Peter's denied him several times and Jesus has come back and he's uh, spent some time with his disciples and Peter included. There's a neat imagery in that of, of uh, where Jesus actually says, uh, go and get the disciples and Peter too. So there's imagery there of Jesus forgiving Peter of those denials and bringing him back into the group. He remains a disciple even though he failed. And uh, Peter actually sticks it out. He meets with some of the other apostles and they meet in what's called the upper room and they pray together and they wait and the narrative completely shifts. This cocky, confident, yet scared disciple receives the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And Peter is the one who stands up and preaches the first Christian sermon. And over 3,000 other Jews, because that's who he's preaching to at this moment, believe that Jesus was the coming Messiah. And the thing I want to point out is, is in that moment, the empowered, spirit-filled Peter, this new Peter, has a whole different boldness about him. And his boldness was amazing because it was given to him by the Holy Spirit. Remember, folks, this is a fisherman, not a trained rabbi or a scribe. He's just a normal guy who followed Jesus, and it changed his life forever. Now, that's really important to understand. Sometimes we think that only those who are trained specialists in the scriptures are the ones who can do amazing things. Um, have you met us? Like, I, I, I said this in the first service, I'll say it in this service as well. I, I actually recommend no one goes to seminary. Seminary is where pastors go to become who we are. It's where we get trained in teaching and interpreting scripture. And I actually say nobody should go. The reason I say that is because I have watched so many people lose faith in the midst of it. Because you find out things that you maybe don't want to find out. Now, I'm not saying it's anything bad, but you find out that some of it just isn't quite as simple as you thought. But at the same time, the deeper you learn, the more you learn about it, you actually find out that it's more simple than you thought. Does that make any sense? In other words, the more school I've done leading right up to a doctorate, I realize that I don't know anything. But some do the opposite. They think that because they've been trained in the scriptures, that they now know everything, and that is super dangerous. So it's, it's a bit scary to go to seminary. Peter didn't go. Listen to uh, a story in the book of Acts. Jesus has come. He's 
died, he's risen from the dead, he's spent time appearing to different people and teaching his disciples, and now he's released them, he's ascended to heaven, he's released them to do the work of the church now, and they're healing people. Imagine that. And they're healing people, and to some of the Jewish leaders, this actually becomes a bit of a problem, because like healing's controversial at this time in history. Like, so healing somebody, where's that actually coming from? And so we need to figure all this out. It's not much different than today. And so Peter and John have healed a man and they're being brought in front of the council. These are like the important politicians of the Jewish people. And they're being brought in front of the council because they did something awesome. It's great, eh? And listen to what it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. So it's this amazing boldness. It's not just being bold. It's like a whole different kind of boldness. For they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. Now, the reason I show you that passage is they go on, they try to figure out what they're going to do with Peter and John. They end up releasing them, but telling them, don't say a thing about this Jesus. And then they say, well, we have to. The reason I'm telling you this is because this is the Peter, the one who's amazing the council with his boldness. This is the Peter who is writing the book that we are going to study. The spirit-filled Peter, the one who steps up and tells the world about Jesus. He, isn't, he still isn't perfect. He struggles to let go of some Jewish understanding and traditions. I need you to understand, Peter struggles to let go of his shaping of what he thinks their religion should be. Now, I know this doesn't happen today. None of us have formed an idea of what church should be, and then none of us get upset when the church isn't that. And none of us hold on to traditions and understandings that might actually not even be in the Bible, but we claim them to be biblical. None of us do that, right? They did then, though, and Peter was actually guilty of that. And the reason we know that is because Peter struggled with Gentiles being brought into the church. Paul actually calls Peter out on that. You're still kind of being too Jewish, Peter. You're not being open to what God is calling us to do. He's not perfect. He gets stuck on some of his Jewish understandings and traditions. But he now lives by the Spirit, empowered to live the call that Jesus gives him. It's this context that I want you to remember as we study Peter's writings. Folks, we're reading a letter. I, I want you to, this to sink in. We are reading a letter that was written to a group of people, exiled people that are Gentiles. I'll get into that in a minute. Written by an apostle. Now, what that means is, is this is written by a man who literally walked with Jesus. A man who was a direct witness to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. A man who was a friend of Jesus and who was taught directly by Jesus. 
When I think about that, I'm like, wow, like we have this in front of us, a letter that's written where he's going to guide us just like Jesus guided him. It's amazing. Now, Peter is actually writing this letter to a group of Christians. Now, interestingly enough, they're mostly Gentile Christians not Jewish Christians. There would have been some Jewish Christians scattered amongst it, but Peter actually reached areas that Paul didn't to the Gentiles. So we tend to be hard on Peter and think, oh, he failed with the Gentiles. Historically speaking, when you go outside of scripture, he actually didn't. So let's see, that's another character change. Now, these were mostly Gentiles who had been persecuted for their faith and they had been dispersed throughout the provinces of Asia Minor. And if you want to know where that is in present day today, it's Turkey. So these are people that are spread out amongst Turkey, which is one of the least Christian nations in the world. But that's where this story is rooted in. That's where these people are living. And Peter's writing this letter to this audience to help them to understand who they are in Christ. And it's important to know this context of who his uh, readers are so that we can then understand the context for us ourselves. And these Gentile Christians, they're being treated poorly because of the faith that they've had in Jesus. They're not being killed. That's part of why they scattered. They're, being, they're allowed to live, but society is not accepting them very well. They're being alienated in a society that isn't interested in faith in Jesus. It's predominantly a Roman-run society. So Peter wants to encourage them in their faith. He wants to give them hope so they don't give up and decide, now I want you to hear this, so they don't give up and decide to just blend into society. Because that's what can happen. When people make fun of people, when people say you're different and you shouldn't be, what we do is, is we work really hard at learning to blend in and just be like the culture. And Peter is petrified that that's what these dispersed Gentile Christians are going to do. And so he wants to give them hope and encourage them not to blend into society. So let's get into the text. I hope you are already opened your Bible. Um, I do want to say this. Peter's introduction, the reason I'm only going to deal with two verses today, is because it's probably the richest, most theologically amazing introduction in the entire New Testament. I actually uh, have about nine pages of study notes that I had to condense into one sermon. So that's why this morning I went a little long and got excited and was sharing information that wasn't in my notes. And you won't get all that this morning. Um, but I might do a Bible study on this. I'm thinking about it because there's just so much happening here that I got to kind of choose what I share and what I don't. So let's dig in. First Peter chapter 1. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, right off the top, Peter doesn't beat around the bush. He establishes himself as Peter, an apostle of Jesus. It's a little bit different than Paul. Paul spends a lot of time defending his apostleship. These readers would have known who Peter was, and there was zero doubt. Peter, an apostle. Yep. 
There was no doubt to it. And so he doesn't actually spend a lot of time. Plus, Peter isn't actually big into authority. There's two times in this book, claiming apostleship is claiming authority. And then later in chapter five, I think it is, he claims eldership, which is also an authoritative statement. I know in our day and age, it isn't always, but at this time it was. He says, I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. This statement that Peter makes after his introduction, Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, he says, I'm writing to God's chosen people. Or in the NIV, it uses the word elect. Now, the reason I chose the New Living Translation is because I actually think it actually represents the Greek text much better than some of the other translations. What you have to understand about translations is that um, there is no such thing as a literal translation of the Bible. It doesn't exist. It's impossible to take the Greek and literally translate it into English. It's always interpreted. They do their best to be literal, but they have to interpretate uh, pieces of it. And the interpreters of many of our evangelical Bibles are evangelicals. And so they tend to use fancy theological words that we evangelicals love, like foreknowledge and exiles and the elect. Those are not actually biblical uh, words. Those are words that we've translated uh, in, from the Greek text into English. And so the New Living actually tries to give you a piece of what it actually means. So instead of using these hotbed words that we spend all kinds of time fighting over, the New Living just says, well, this is basically what Peter's saying. So God's chosen people or the elect. Now, that is a troublesome statement if you're a Jew. Any Jews here? I really wish like someday somebody would put up their hand. So we're Gentiles, okay? To a Jew, they would be like, how is Peter writing this letter to God's chosen people when he's writing it to the Gentiles who are not God's chosen people. Because if you go back to the Hebrew scriptures, this makes absolutely no sense. The nation of Israel is God's chosen people. The Jews are God's chosen people. Just read the Bible. Peter's writing to Gentiles, believers that are scattered in the Asian provinces. He isn't writing to God's chosen people. That's the Jewish people. Well, according to Peter... In this opening statement, Jesus, Peter believes that these Gentile Christians are God's chosen people as well. God's elect. God's chosen people. And Peter's emphasizing that Christians have a special status as God's elect, God's chosen people. Folks, the church, what Peter's doing here, is the church is the new Israel, the people of God in continuity with Israel in the Old Testament. These Gentiles are now heirs of Abraham, just like 
Israel. This is an identity thing. Listen to what Galatians chapter 3 says. So if you don't believe me in this, let's jump out of Peter's writings because maybe Peter's wrong or something, right? So we'll go to Paul because Paul's always right. So I was being sarcastic. You guys should hang out with Bible scholars more often. We would all be laughing crazily at that statement. But anyway, Paul says this, and now that you belong to Christ, he's talking to all people who believe in Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. All the people who follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior have this same identity. We are all children of God. We're heirs of Abraham, and the same promise that God made to Abraham, he has made to us too. This is huge. This is a big statement that Peter is making. In Genesis chapter 12, let's read about this covenantal promise that God has made to Abraham. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, your father, family, and go to the land that I will show you. There is like huge weaving of being a foreigner all throughout scripture. And Abraham is called out away from family to be a foreigner in a land that he doesn't know, to leave his relatives, to leave his father's family. It's kind of like God saying, you're gonna have to leave Norfolk County at some point. So you see this and you'll see Peter using this theme of being exiles, being foreigners in a land because that actually is the theme of the Old Testament for Abraham and the nation of Israel. They were foreigners, wanderers, never fully accepted. But listen to what he says about that group of people. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you and make you famous and you'll be a blessing to others. Fame and a blessing to others does not always connect. I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be, be a blessing, will be blessed through you. Folks, this promise is our promise. Peter is trying to encourage these believers. So he starts with establishing their identity in Christ. Now he uses identity language because he knows how important it is for them to know who they are. You see, when we don't know who we are, when we're searching for identity, when we can't figure out what our identity is rooted in, we then actually struggle to know how to live. But when you're able to know and recognize your identity, what you're rooted in, then you will know how to live. And so Peter knows this. I have to ground this group of Gentiles. I don't want them to blend into society, to become ineffective in their faith. I want them to be different. And in order for them to be different, they actually have to understand where they come from, what their identity is. And so I'm going to link them back to Abraham and to the promised covenant that links them to the coming Messiah. There's a whole bunch of stuff that I'm not going to get into uh, because we'd be here forever. And then he's going to say, and you need to understand that your identity is built in Christ. 
that you are children of God, that you're part of a family. And you need to live life rooted in that family in order to know how to live. And so if you have an identity crisis, you won't know how to live. Folks, I actually think the church in North America has a major identity crisis. We spend most of our time shaping our identity in the world and not shaping our identity as children of God. We're going to see Peter use this link a lot, and he's constantly using Old Testament imagery to explain to these people what their identity is rooted in. And then he continues. He continues in this passage to use the imagery by calling them exiles or foreigners. Now, there's debate around whether this is uh, uh, imagery or whether this is quite literal. I would actually argue that they are literally foreigners and exiles, um, but there is other meaning behind it as well. But there's, there's kind of like a list of questions that you ask to know whether something's figurative or literal, and this, this passage doesn't meet the figurative sense, it meets the literal sense. Um, now, again, this language of foreigner or exile is very normal language in the Old Testament, and it's often used to refer to Abraham and to Israel, and it's directly linked to who they are, their identity. And Abraham was constantly seen as someone in the foreign land. Like, for instance, when he went to bury his wife, many people would think, I'm going to bury my wife, I need to take her home. But listen to what Genesis chapter, 30, verse, chapter 33, verse 4 says. Here I am, a stranger and a foreigner among you. Please sell me a piece of land so I can give my wife a proper burial. He has no intentions of going back home. He remains a stranger and a foreigner. You'll see this all throughout the Old Testament. Both Abraham and the nation of Israel in the Old Testament were exiles wherever they went. They never truly belonged. And just like these Gentile Christians that Peter's writing to, they don't fit into the society that they're living in. And Peter's telling them that actually this is exactly how it's supposed to be. That if you fit into society, you're probably blending. You should be different than society when you're living your life for Christ you'll be different than the culture around you. Because Christians are not citizens of this world, Scripture says. Our identity is found in being children of God, not in the things of this world. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, but we are citizens of... It doesn't say Norfolk County. It doesn't even say of the earth. It says that we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own. I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> Using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Our identity is not found in this world. It's found in being obedient to Christ in a world that is against him. We are citizens of heaven, not Norfolk County. Everyone who follows Jesus is a foreigner, just like the Jews were throughout their history. And this means 
that we're to live as citizens of heaven, not as citizens of this world. It's exactly where Peter takes us in this passage. But what he does is he paints a beautiful picture in verse two. We've only dealt with one verse so far. In verse two, he paints this beautiful picture of a Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He paints this beautiful picture of how the Trinity, the Godhead, how what the role is of each of them in salvation. Right off the bat, in the second verse of Peter's introduction, he gets into the role of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and our salvation. Two verses in, it's awesome. Can you sense my excitement? Like I, I know you're not all Bible geeks, but share some of it with me. It's amazing how he links all of this to shape what our identity actually is. So we're chosen people living in a foreign culture. And listen to how Peter continues. He says in verse two, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago and a spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. What Peter does here is amazing. He's focusing in on the role of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and our identity as chosen people. And he's telling us that God the Father knew us and chose us for salvation. Now, God is the one who's in control. That's what he's saying. So forget about all this like, this, like the elect and the foreknowledge and that some are chosen to be saved and some are not. Maybe in the Bible study we'll go after that misled doctrine. Um, because that's not, that's not what it's saying at all. That's not what Peter's saying. He's building off of identity here. What he's essentially giving them comfort in, folks, is this. God is actually the one who makes the salvific decisions. Salvific, really fancy word for those who are saved. Now, it means that you and I don't make the decision of who's saved and who isn't. Isn't that awesome? Because if I made that decision, it would be interesting. Can you imagine if your salvation was in the hands of me? Or someone else sitting beside you? Have you ever made the statement of, I wonder if so-and-so's saved? Stop wondering. Because it's not up to you. Now, the Bible gives us assurance of salvation. It also says there's evidence of salvation. But guess what that evidence is? The fruits of the Spirit. Hmm. How many people were patient this morning? Anyway, be patient with me. He's trying to give them comfort. That's his motive here. Would he be giving them comfort if he was saying, you know, some of you are chosen and some of you are not, and it sucks to be if you're not? Is that comfort? What he's saying is God's actually in control And we have to be willing to be okay with that basic statement. Instead of arguing and fighting about what we think it might mean, we need to just settle in. God decides who's saved and who's not saved. And that is just the way it is. Now, we do have to receive it and respond to it. But it's God who calls those people to be saved. It's the work of the Holy Spirit 
I love this because it's incredibly freeing to me that God is the one that's in control, that I am not the one who saves people. It's God that does the saving. How many times have you beat yourself up because you're working on someone and you feel like their salvation is in your hands and you have to say the right things in order for them to get saved? Folks, stop. Start by living your life in, as your identity in Christ and then branch out from there. If your life isn't rooted in that identity, you will never share a gospel message in a way that truly brings someone to faith. It might bring them to a decision to profess, but you have to listen to previous sermons to understand what I just said. Now, I have a role to play, but even my role to play in someone's salvation is driven by God. Please understand God's sovereignty. He is God. And I'm okay with that. Now, the Holy Spirit, Peter says, makes me holy. This excites me as well because I thought that I had to make myself holy. I thought that everything I do and how I behave, so every time I don't do my devotions in the morning, I'm no longer holy. But if I do my devotions and I pray a lot and I attend church and I do all these things, now I've achieved holiness. The problem is, is that's not what makes you holy. It's the spirit living in you because of the blood of Christ. We're gonna get into that. I love this because it's incredibly freeing. God is the one in control. And Peter says that because of our life of obedience, he links obedience to this, because of our life of obedience, he said the result is the spirit making you holy. I am now empowered to live my life obedient to Jesus because the Holy Spirit lives in me. That is the empowered Peter that we were talking about from Acts 2. And then he says something really, do you notice something in this passage? He reversed the Godhead lingo. Like we say, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Do you notice what Peter did? The Father, the Spirit, Jesus. Now he did this, I believe, on purpose. And it's because of the fact that Jesus undergirds all of this. Now that's a fancy way of saying this could not happen without the blood of Christ. And he says that we've been cleansed or sprinkled. I wouldn't have done well back in Jewish times. Let me read you a passage because he's actually quoting a passage out of Exodus. He's using Old Testament imagery again. Exodus 24, verses seven to eight. Moses, it says, then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. Again, they all responded. Listen to what Israel responded. If you know anything about Israel's history, you'll find this really, really funny. We will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will obey. Hmm. Then Moses, now this is why I would not have been a very good Israelite. Moses took the blood from the basins and splattered it all over the people. Ugh. Like he takes like, and he's like going like this. Can you imagine like in service, <laughs> right? Like the cleaners would be so angry at me. Now listen to what he declares though. Look, this blood confirms the covenant the Lord has made with you in giving you these instructions. God has told them how to live 
and they've been sprinkled in the blood which brings them into the covenant. The blood of Jesus identifies us as people of the new covenant, people who have been forgiven and cleansed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our entire identity is found in the blood of Jesus. Our salvation is only possible because of his sacrifice. Our identity in Christ is what leads us to obedience and forgiveness. In other words, if you have an identity crisis going on right now and you don't see yourself as a child of God and you don't make decisions in life as a child of God, then you will struggle with obedience and you will struggle living your life under the grace and the forgiveness that God has given you. Have you ever been forgiven for something but you don't really feel forgiven? That's how you'll live if you're having an identity crisis. You won't really believe that you're forgiven and that you're given free grace because of something that Jesus did. You'll actually be like, nah, I think there's strings attached. There's something going on here. But when you build your identity in the blood of Christ, when you have the Holy Spirit living in you, the Father who already knew you and chose you, everything changes. Because you know that you're part of the family. You know that you're a child of God. And now we struggle with this too because our families are so messed up nowadays. You need to understand this is the perfect father of an imperfect family. But one thing that family represents is that no matter what, we never let them go. And when you build your identity in a God who will never let you go no matter what you do. Now you've got a foundation to learn who you truly are in Christ. The worship team can join me. Peter opens his letter with these powerful words for a reason. The people need to understand their identity because if they don't, they're just going to blend into the world. He's encouraging them to build their identity on who they are in God's family, rather than the social perceptions around them. It's our identity in Christ that leads us to obedience, not our identity in the world. We've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, chosen and made holy, and our lives need to reflect the ways of Jesus. It's, only, it's the only way that we'll ever truly be the church in a world that is broken and lost. The church, the new Israel, is called to be the people of God. We're called to live different, called to reflect the identity of Jesus to the world. We're called to love called to be different than the world around us. How many people know that this world isn't very loving? A simple way of looking at this is he's just calling you to be incredibly loving, radically loving, and that radical love is actually completely countercultural and different. And people won't always like it. They won't always like the fact that you care about them, that you don't judge them. And that's exactly the way it's supposed to be. I struggle with this because 
<laughs> to be quite frank, churches can be horrible places. But I think it's because we have an identity crisis. And so I really resonate with the call that Peter makes to these people. Find your identity in Jesus. Be cleansed by the blood of Christ for forgiveness and be motivated by the Holy Spirit living in you.